In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Today, we are welcoming back to The Burn, a prolific writer and past Burn guest. If you've been a listener for a little while or a reader of Wildfire Magazine, you will recognize her name, Anne Camden. Anne is joining me today to read a piece she wrote for our most recent body issue about a scary experience she had with an allergic reaction to chemotherapy. Before I reintroduce Anne to you, however, I want to take a moment to let you know that today's episode does contain some salty language. I always say cancer is a salty business, and now and again, there is no getting around the use of colorful language to fully describe it. And if that isn't something you are up for today, or now isn't the right time to listen to something like that, we will catch up with you later. I also have the pleasure of letting you know that today's episode is brought to you by a friend of mine. I've had the pleasure of meeting so many incredible people on this breast cancer path who are working hard to make the experience of breast cancer better for the next diagnosed. Today's episode is brought to you by Javasia Harris-Bowser and the Righteous Babe podcast. Javasia and I share a few commonalities. We were both diagnosed with breast cancer, and we both believe wholeheartedly in the power of storytelling to transform lives. You may have seen Javasia on the cover of Wildfire Magazine's Community Issue. Javasia and I met back then when I became aware of the book and the work that she was doing with C. Jane Wright Collective. Javasia was a writer long before her diagnosis of breast cancer and continues to use writing to process her life and teach others not only how to do the same, but also how to make money as a writer. Big thanks to Javasia and her podcast for their support of The Burn. As Javasia puts it, the Righteous Babe podcast is the grown woman's guide to journaling, giving you the inspiration and practical tools you need to create a life-changing journaling practice. Javasia also believes we all have the power to write our way through anything and to the life of our dreams. We'll hear more about that from Javasia herself later in this episode. We have a link to the Righteous Babe podcast, and that's Righteous, W-R-I-T-E-O-U-S, in the show notes. Thanks again, Javasia. Now, back to today's guest. Anne Camden is joining me from Raleigh, North Carolina. Anne began her relationship with cancer when she was 38. It was 2009, and at that time, her breast cancer was ductal. In May 2016, Anne was diagnosed with a secondary primary cancer, this time lobular, in her left breast, along with a pericardial effusion, and the cancer had spread to her bones. At 51, she was diagnosed with leptomeningeal disease, which is fluid of the brain and spine, and many other organs. She's undergoing aggressive treatment right now. 
for years, Anne lived life in a state of denial that anything was wrong, but now spends a lot of her time writing, napping, and quilting. She manages a blog called downnotout.com and does as much advocacy work as she can find the energy. In and around all of it, Anne is the mother of twin college-age girls and is married to her own college sweetheart, and as I said, they live together in Raleigh. Welcome to The Burn again, Anne. Nice to see you. Thank you. It is an honor to be here again. Yes, I'm so excited. I We were talking right before we hit record that I think this is your third time on, and you've been published in Wildfire several times as well. So thank you for all of that. No, thank you. It's my pleasure. Um, you are here to read an essay you wrote, as I said, for our most recent body issue. Your piece is called Fast Will Make Me Furious. I'll turn over the mic to you shortly. After Anne reads, we will chat. Those of you listening, stay tuned to the very end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. Okay, Anne, I'll let you take it away. Thank you. Fast will make me furious. I woke up in the emergency room. No concept of time. My husband was on one side of the bed, and my best friend, Steph, was crammed in the corner in a plastic chair. I remember she had driven me to chemo that morning and I don't remember anything else. Someone mentioned allergies as I floated in and out of the conversation. That's odd, I thought. I don't have any allergies. But since being diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer in 2016, I have undergone hundreds of chemo treatments with various drug combos, and I am meticulous about taking the pre-meds like dexamethasone and Benadryl, Pepsid and lorazepam, I thought they would prevent an allergic reaction. I swallow them with orange juice about an hour before my appointment. I record it all in a little notebook to make sure I don't forget anything. That Thursday morning, I selected the beige recliner as far from the nurse's station as possible. I don't know why, but I wanted to be left alone. My right side was already in intense pain when we arrived. It felt like the green giant had given up squeezing vegetables and had wrapped his thumb around my right rib and was squeezing me like he was wringing water out of spinach. It hurt like hell, and I was told it was likely the pleural effusion, but no one seemed to be concerned. The nurse started my treatment with Taxol, and it was uneventful. When the bag was empty, she switched me over to carboplatin. I've had this drug combination at least eight times before, so I'm familiar with it. Just a few minutes into the treatment, I unplugged the IV pole and hustled across the clinic to the bathroom to pee and vomit. I was surprised, as I usually tolerate it well, and they always administer plenty of anti-nausea drugs. The effort of walking across the room wore me out. I slogged back to my chair and just a few minutes later needed to repeat the process. This time, Steph helped me wobble across the infusion room. I was suddenly unstable. I went to the bathroom, threw up again, and barely made it to the door. I need to lie down right now, I said, turning to the room next door where a hospital bed is rarely occupied. I collapsed onto the bed, begging Steph to take my boots off and clutching at my chest trying to breathe. She summoned help in the room filled with nurses, physician assistants, and an oncologist I had never seen before. Because, of course, my oncologist was on his first vacation since the pandemic. I was soaked in sweat and tugging at my sweatshirt. 
I hurt so fucking bad, I yelled out. Someone called out my blood pressure, 53 over 38, while someone else put an oxygen tubing up my nose. An albuterol shot went into my IV, and someone gave me Pepsid. My oxygen levels bumped around in the 80s. A voice called out, blood pressure, 59 over 37. And that's the last thing I remember from the infusion clinic. Apparently, within minutes, I was transported a half mile up the road to the hospital. Hours later, I started to regain consciousness with Steph and Jeff flanking me in the ER. Doctors and nurses kept muttering the words, severe allergic reaction to carboplatin and a pleural effusion. But I didn't understand. I had taken this combo more than eight times, which is apparently the sweet spot when the body remembers the drug and reacts, sometimes violently. The allergic reaction, coupled with a moderate pleural effusion, which is when fluid accumulates around the lung, sent me into an anaphylactic shock. The afternoon and evening were filled with vital checks, pain meds, and scans. My blood pressure crawled back up to 90 over 60, and my oxygen level worked back up into the 90s. I only know this from reading the notes in my chart and piecing the story together from Steph and Jeff. I still didn't realize how serious the episode had been, but the fear in their eyes told me that they had seen some stuff that afternoon and they were terrified. Meanwhile, at home, beside the couch, lay a book I've been reading, Finishing Well to the Glory of God, and my journal to help me process my thoughts on dying. My slippers and a favorite pillow were there because I expected to spend the day resting after chemo was finished. It never crossed my mind that I might not come home from chemo. Over the years, these appointments have become routine and predictable. Nothing like this has ever happened. It hit me that for years, I assumed my body would slowly succumb to death. With cancer, I've heard so many stories of hospice and drawn-out pain that I'm not at all prepared for a quick, spontaneous death. I anticipated having my family and friends by my bedside for a final goodbye, a few minutes for those last words that I would need to share. I projected the dramatic, gut-wrenching scenes like I see on television, where the beeping goes silent, or the bouncing ball becomes a flat line, the Hollywood images of dying. That's what I'm preparing myself for, my body slowly shutting down. But once again, cancer demonstrated that there are many ways that my body will react to treatments, to disease, even to aging. And I certainly can't predict them like I wish I could. And I can only prepare for so many different scenarios. But this I know, I will be furious if it's so fast that I can't say goodbye. Yes. Another amazing story, Anne. Thank you so much for that. So we will take a quick break here, let Anne catch her breath, and when we come back, we'll dig into it. Hi, my name is Javasia Harris-Bowser, and I will tell anyone who will listen that I journaled my way through cancer. I believe that through journaling, we can write our way through the worst times and also to the best times. Journaling can also help you write and eventually share your story. I'm so obsessed with the transformative power of journaling that I started a podcast about it. I call it the Righteous Babe podcast because why not? 
And that's Righteous Spell, W-R-I-T-E-O-U-S. Because when you're a writer, you get to make up words. So if you want to start journaling or take your journaling practice to the next level, check out the Righteous Bait podcast. I also have a website and community for women writers called C. Jane Wright. I'd love for you to get to know us too. Learn more about my podcast and writing community at cjanewrightbham.com. Hi, my name is Jen Aubrey. I live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I was diagnosed with stage 2A breast cancer at the age of 50 last year in 2021. I recently attended a free wildfire pop-up writing workshop for the young breast cancer community. It was just what I needed to get my writing juices flowing. The progression of the writing prompts and the quotes with them were so helpful. As I was writing, things just came out that I had forgotten. It was so therapeutic for me. I also loved hearing other people's stories. I realized that there are so many others out there feeling exactly how I am with the same struggles. And I want to do something to make it better for others that go down the same path. I can't recommend this workshop enough. Thanks so much for the love, Jen. Appreciate your testimonial. Thank you so much again for your support of the Burn Javasia. I love what you're doing with the Righteous Babe podcast. All right, Anne, thanks again for your story and for reading it. I know right before we hit record, you shared with me that today was, in fact, another chemo day. So I want to ask you how it is reading this story and continuing to have to keep going back. Um, I don't know. How are you doing with all this? You know, I think it's one of those things that you just put on your shoes and get out the door and do it because you don't have another option. But um, it's definitely gets harder. And the carboplatin reaction was a huge mental setback of, holy crap, this isn't at all what I expected. And I think that that probably shook me mentally as much as it did physically. Um, and then, of course, you know, we had to find new treatments and everything. So yeah, there's always that. Right, right. You know, I was struck by something you said in your piece about um, a routine and getting used to doing something over and over again. And it feels like there's kind of two sides to that coin, like the one side of the predictability being kind of reassuring and also the having to do something again and again that makes your body uh, resist and react to this thing. And I'm just wondering if at any point during this, you have resonated with the idea that it could be causing you post-traumatic stress and and how it was to go back that first time after. I think well, the first time following the allergic reaction, the oncology team, the hospital team, there were so many different opinions on whether or not I should mm. even try it again. And ultimately, we scratched it at the last minute and decided it was too much of a risk. And I think it was like maybe one of the first times that through all those treatments that I've broke down and just been relieved that they weren't going to put me through that, um, that we were going to look for other options and a different way to go. Because I think your body does get to a point where you just can't process mm -hmm. it anymore. So yeah. I And I imagine it was hard for your family to see you go out the door that day. Well, I, I know your girls are off at school, but, you know, your family knowing you were going back kind of into the fire, a different version of this fire. 
must have been hard for them too. Yeah. I think that you kind of sit on pins and needles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, you wrote in your piece, it never crossed my mind, I might not come home from chemo. And that really resonated with me. I didn't have any allergic reactions. Fortunately, I feel like I more for myself just had the, it was harder to keep going to chemo knowing what I would feel like after, you know, the bliss of ignorance wore away. And then I had to just force myself to keep doing this thing. But, you know, other people have experienced this really scary allergic reaction experience. And I just wonder if you, um, have you talked to others who had that experience or was this entirely out of left field for you? At the time, it was entirely out of left field. And I felt like I was a pretty educated patient. You know, I I read a lot. I'm on a lot of the um, Facebook groups. I, I hear a lot. But it just really caught me so off guard and out like left field. Um, but since then, I have talked to several others who've either had a reaction to carboplatin in particular or other drugs. Um, and it's interesting in the medical community how they often, the nurses or the doctors will have kind of a physical reaction to, oh, you've had an allergy to that. We're not ever going to try that again. Like, you know, it's, we're steer clear mm-hmm. and find something else. And fortunately, we've had other options so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so glad. Yeah. Um, so you, you know, because you are a writer and you're a wildfire writer that I'm always reaching for kind of the lesson in this story because more time has passed now since you first wrote it. And since I published it, like, what would you say is kind of, um, the lessons that this, this particular incident taught you or what you want to ultimately really communicate about it? As always a great question, April. Um, You know, even though when you're living with one foot in a terminal disease, I often talk about, you know, one foot in real life and one foot with this terminal disease. um, I think that having the allergic reaction, that immediate, you may not, you know, make it out of here kind of um, experience made me even more appreciate my family, my friends, the people that are there for me and try to. Um, get my life a little bit more in order, um, which, you know, it's always a balance. You have to kind of give and take. You know, I don't want to just be living to die. I want to be living. So, um, you know, I think that's the hard part sometimes with metastatic breast cancer is balancing all of that. Mm -hmm. And where does it go? Right. How do you use your energy? Yeah, yeah. And then, like you said in your piece, too, there is this, I think that's very natural that people do, which is to start to imagine their own death and what that might look like. And like you said, there's a Hollywood perception of that. And it makes a lot of sense to, you know, hold on to that because that's what's been demonstrated. And then this showed you that, you know, crap, this could go in a totally different direction. So what are what are your thoughts right now around like I guess I want to ask you what your version of a a good death would be for you and have you thought about that? I've thought about it. Um I've probably spent a lot of time thinking about what I think a good death would look like. But I'm not sure I have a great answer, but I think it would be surrounded by the 
eight to 10 family and friends and, you know, at my home, maybe in my garden with a, a little bit of time and, um, you know, the gentle music playing. It was just kind of that whole Hallmark, Disney or um, Hollywood kind of look and feel to it. But, um, you know, I think it's most important for to have my immediate family, my husband and my my daughters with me. Um, and that's not to say that there's not been a lot of other people who've poured into us over the years and, and helped us through all this journey. But um, I think being surrounded by by them just as that transition and, and hopefully there's a lot of peace there. So. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. And you only get one chance. So. I, exactly. <laughs> That's true. There aren't yeah. really just rehearsals for that. Mm. It's no. interesting. Yeah. You know, so I have lost both my parents and, and others and my parents, um, one was very sudden and no chance of goodbye or anything like that. And then the other was a little bit longer and, and we had opportunities for goodbye. And my grandparents, one was fast, one was slower. And so people have asked me, you know, which is better? And I wish there was like an actual answer to that question, you know, because we both also have kind of pros and cons, both for the person experiencing it, but also for those of us, you know, bearing witness too. And I'm sure you've also experienced a spectrum of different versions as well. I don't know what my story is in there or my question rather, but, you know, it's just, I appreciate that you, as I know you, want to open up this discussion and be able to talk about something like this. And I know from talking to you, these are hard conversations to have because they're so like you said, there's no, uh, first of all, we're not going to get out of it. Like everyone will have to go through some version of it. And we don't really get to plan for it either. We, we just control what we can control, which isn't a whole lot around it. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm just, I'm just kind of laying that out there. I wonder if you have anything you would want to add to that. No, I think you're exactly spot on. I think, you know, we, we can only do the best we can day in and day out and to make sure that those that, you know, we really love and care about know and understand that. Um, But it is as a society, and we've talked about this recently, it's a challenge because we don't talk about death and dying. It's kind of a forbidden, like Mm -hmm. I can feel like people prickle up when, when I bring it up or when I talk about it with family or friends many times. And, you know, the only thing we're assured of is we're born and we die. Like, and then, you know, it's what's the dash in between. And it would be, I I would like to think that it would be a little easier on each other, on our families, um, on our communities, if we could talk a little bit better about death and dying and what does it look like and how do we grieve and mourn because it doesn't look the same for each person. And it's, dramatically different and um Mm -hmm. just to to be able to hold space for those lives yeah that that really resonates for me with a lot of conversations I've had and also this part where it seems like the person experiencing cancer and I'm and I'm only speaking about cancer because that's where my experience is but the person experiencing the cancer is sometimes hungry to have this conversation whereas the family primarily family and friends who haven't had the cancer, that's terrifying. There is this like speaking it into existence, but 
for me, topics like this, they're scarier, I feel, when they're unspoken. And they start to like grow these really long fangs or something until we actually say them out loud and start to really talk about it. I'm kind of wondering how in your own family and if everyone's been on the same page as you or it's kind of an evolving conversation. Boy, I think it's an evolving conversation and I think it will continue to evolve as we each grow and change in our relationships. Um, you know, I, I can feel the prickles when I bring it up with certain family members and and it's almost like they feel like I'm throwing up a white flag and, you know, just giving up and not doing any more treatment and whatnot. And that's not it at all. But I'd like to be able to have the discussion about, you know, death and dying. And and that's why you know, I have started reading some of the books and um, different perspectives on theologians or doctors or, you know, different perspectives of death doulas, you know, just to better understand what's going on um, in the human body and what's what happens to those that are left behind. You know, I think especially as parents or mothers, um, you know, you want to make sure that you've set your child up for the best definition of success, even if you're not going to be there. And Mm -hmm. my daughters were in kindergarten when I was diagnosed early stage and now they're in college. But that has been a theme throughout is how do I set them up for emotional success and being able to handle something that's really tragic and horrible um, as a child. So mm-hmm. now they're young adults, but and I don't know that the tragedy gets any less from what I understand. Right. So. Maybe just a little different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that you have been, I, I know you to be a very open and transparent person. And so I can imagine some of those conversations and also I can imagine at various stages, you know, they've kind of had to guide you in what they're ready to hear. Like all of us parenting through cancer, we have this age appropriate, kid appropriate kind of walk through it, you know, despite ourselves. So yeah, I appreciate that. So I want to ask one more question for you as our time kind of dwindles, but I want to acknowledge the fact that you have been published in Wildfire several times. You've been on the burn several times. And I'm just curious if you have any advice for others at this point in terms of writing cancer memoirs, anything there for you? Yeah, I think the the beauty of writing is I feel like it is um, just such a healing therapy that you can do with a piece of paper and a pen you know it doesn't cost a dime really it's 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 easy entry points but I think that the um the rewards are so huge and when I've talked with um children maybe who've lost their parents or um spouses and whatnot it's those little stories and snippets that were left behind either in a journal or tucked in a family Bible or wherever um, on a computer that were really like the little nuggets of sunshine kind of, you know, coming back to you of, hey, I wanted you to know how I met your father or what happened on the day you were born. Like it's not, not all the stories have to be negative. They don't all have to be about cancer, but they can still feel like you're 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 building that legacy, you're planting that seed, but it also is a great space to um, 
you know, think through treatment options or, um, you know, your own plans for your, the final years of your life. I think that, you know, just the paper and pencil part of it is just so rewarding for most people if they can sit down and spend that 10 to 15 minutes of time to, to do mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Well, you're speaking to the choir. I fully believe everything you just said. Um, But you had me flash back to after my dad passed away, how seeing his handwriting, just anything he wrote in his own hand immediately put his voice in my head and how much I really appreciated that. And it makes me think about my own writing because I do so much of it Um, typed, you know, or in final version, I tend to type it up. But it makes me think that there's, um, there's power in seeing, you know, that I held that pen and I wrote that word there. And obviously, for my own daughter, she's grown up with my handwriting around her in our house. But yeah, there's just something about the transformative power of hearing someone's story handwritten. Um, And then, yeah, just handwriting. I don't know. We could probably spend a whole nother like half hour just on handwriting alone, but probably. Yeah. I'm just curious. Do you tend to write longhand or are you typing everything? I spend a lot of time doing longhand for journal, like 10 or 15 minutes every day is is my goal. Mm -hmm. I also write a lot of cards because I love tucking Mm -hmm. cards away Mm -hmm. for, you know, whenever. And I always have a note in those. Like it's, so that's really important to me. Why send a card if there's not a note? But that's just my personal opinion. But then when I write, you know, a blog post or a story like this, then I go ahead and type them up and I got to figure out a system to get them a little bit easier to find and access for wherever they're going to go. So, yeah. Right. Sure. Well, I love that you brought up your blog because um, the last question I had for you was where people can find you, learn more about you. Um, so would you like to share your blog address and anywhere else people can find your writing? Yeah, that's a great question. I try to blog semi-regularly at down-not-out.com. Um, and then I'm also on Facebook at Ann Camden and on Instagram at I think it's Ann Camden NC. So yeah. Perfect. Always welcome the chance to connect. Yeah. And we will definitely link to all that stuff in the show notes as well. Well, Anne, thank you so much um, for being here. The piece that you read again for everyone was called Fast Will Make Me Furious. And I love that Hollywood came into our talk today a couple of different ways. And um, yeah, I just really appreciate your openness and transparency to share this experience of of cancer, your experience of cancer with all of us. So thank you. Thanks. I think it's really powerful, the opportunity to to share our stories, lift each other up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm sure there is someone out there who did not know that you could have an allergic reaction to chemo. And um, it's important to to spread that awareness as well. Just right there. Mm. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks so much to Anne Camden. I'm April Stearns, and you've been listening to The Burn. The Burn's a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young people like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay to the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is Monica Haro. If you want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories, Visit wildfirecommunity.org to find a copy of the issue shared in today's episode. 
to find our rich 40 plus issues in the wildfire archives and to take a writing workshop with me. There's no place on the planet like a wildfire writing workshop and I want you to experience it for yourself. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story. If you got value out of today's conversation, please share this out with your friends and family. Take a screenshot of the episode in your pod player or use the share button there. Of course, if you share it to your social media, please tag me. I'm at wildfire underscore BC underscore community. You can tag Anne as well at Anne Camden and see and don't forget to subscribe to the burn and listen to it wherever you go if you like what you hear please take a moment and leave us a five-star review i would be forever grateful all right so here is your writing prompt we've been talking today about an unexpected thing that happened to Anne during her chemotherapy so your writing prompt is to write about something no one ever told you about no one tells you about is the prompt no one tells you about Set your timer for eight minutes, right? Without stopping or editing, keep that hand moving. There's magic there. And if you find that you write best with a good prompt, I've got lots more for you at wildfirecommunity.org slash free. Happy writing. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take good care.